0: going on true crime fans i'm your host heath and i'm your host daphne and you're listening to going west
1: hello everybody today's case is a devastating and baffling story out of an idyllic connecticut town and it was recommended by jessica a while back so sorry it took us so long so thank you so much jessica
0: Yes. Thanks, Jessica. Also, we just released a new bonus episode on the eerie case of Trevor Dealey. That is an Ireland case. Uh, If you want to hear that one and over a hundred more bonus ad free full length episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash going west podcast,
1: or you can subscribe on Apple podcasts. Yes. And thank you in advance. If you go subscribe, but for now let's dive into today's story. All right,
0: guys, this is episode 365 of Going West, so let's get into it. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord
1: In December of 2005, a 44-year-old woman headed out for a routine jog at dusk in her rural Connecticut town, disappearing into the night. After her family, community, and police worked overnight to find her, a horrific discovery was made in the form of a literal trail of blood leading to a famous puppeteer's doorstep. This is the story of Judy Nyland. rivers also known as judy was born on june 7, 1961 to mother margaret who worked as a nurse in worcester and robert rivers in massachusetts alongside six siblings brothers gary vinnie bobby and chris and sisters sissy and barbara judy and her siblings grew up in the small town of oxford massachusetts and from a young age judy just proved to be a very caring and loving person with friends later describing her as, quote, intelligent, funny, compassionate, and energetic. In high school, Judy was a cheerleader, and the year she graduated in 1979, she wrote, quote, As the years pass by, we'll glance at faded photographs recalling memories shared with special friends and family, never wanting it to end. Memories are the only thing we're left with in the end. And boy, did she love her family. They were all very, very close. After high school, Judy went on to study social work at the University of Connecticut. So not far from home, just under an hour's drive because she knew she wanted to work with kids. And this is really where her caring nature came in because she loved taking care of people and had a passion for teaching. She also loved staying active and even won a statewide bodybuilding contest in her 20s. And this was just around the same time that she received her master's degree in her mid-20s for social work. Then years later in 2002, 41-year-old Judy married the love of her life, a man named John Baker. And I don't have access to marriage licenses in this case, so I can't confirm how Judy got the surname Nyland because her birth name was Rivers. And obviously her husband John's last name is Baker, so we can probably assume that she had been married before John. But John Baker is the man that she spent the rest of her years with and reportedly, they had a wonderful and loving marriage. Actually, John described their relationship very similar to the one in When Harry Met Sally. Like they loved watching that movie together and they connected with the fact that, you know, Harry and Sally were friends and then they weren't and then they were friends again and then they were dating and then they weren't, et cetera. Until finally Judy and John got married and they kept it that way happily until Judy died. And although she and John didn't have children of their own, she gained three kids from John's previous relationship, Seth, Jillian, and Dylan.
0: In recent years, Judy was passionate about spending time outdoors and pursuing athletic endeavors. She was a jogger, as well as a gardener at her home in Woodstock, Connecticut, where she had settled. So Woodstock is a small rural community hosting about 8,000 residents back in 2005 when this story takes place located in the northeast corner of the state, next to the borders of Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And it is absolutely beautiful. I mean, the street that Judy lived on and the streets around it are sparsely dotted with houses and surrounded by lush, green nature in the summertime. In the winter, when this story takes place, it's still stunning and equally forested, just with a lot of bare trees. And it honestly looks like a very nice place to live with quaint New England style homes to castle-esque ones. And here's what the Connecticut state website says about Woodstock, quote, known for its tranquility, history, and pastoral scenic looks, it's the second largest town area wise in Connecticut, but still small in population. Woodstock has an agricultural background with more operating dairy farms than any other town in the state other attractions include wineries orchards breweries and even a sugar house called norman's which offers premium local maple syrup so it is definitely not the place or the town that you would expect something really awful to happen in it's a very peaceful and charming place work wise in 2005 44 year old judy was working at woodstock middle school as the school's social worker mostly working with 7th and 8th graders, which she reportedly loved because it kind of gave her a chance to help navigate that tough late-tween, early-teen age. Though a dream that she had was to help kids and parents even further by opening a local daycare with her husband, John Baker. But everything would come to a screeching halt when Judy's normal routine jog turned into a life-changing event.
1: On Monday, December 12th, 2005, the sun set early in Woodstock at 4.17pm, but with Judy's schedule, it worked out for her to take her daily jog of four to five miles right around that time, despite the darkness settling in. As Heath said, the area is dotted with houses, so it seems like, just according to a map, there are woods between a lot of the houses, and many houses sit on large properties. So, The jogs that Judy would take must have felt very serene. This isn't like a normal suburban neighborhood that you might be picturing where there's houses all over the place. There is a lot more woods than there are houses. So at this point, Judy was living in a quaint colonial style three bedroom house in rural Woodstock with John, her beloved dogs, and two of her stepkids who were 17 and 14 at the time with the eldest, age 19, moved out by then. So at 4.30 p.m., Judy headed out for her jog, which shouldn't have lasted more than an hour or so. But about two hours later at 6.15 p.m., she failed to pick up 14-year-old Dylan from school. And we can assume that Dylan had some kind of extracurricular or sport since school went so late that day. When John and the kids realized that Judy wasn't home, they headed out to the streets of Woodstock to see if they could find her jogging or perhaps injured on the side of the road somewhere. But when their search turned up empty, Judy's husband, John Baker, headed to the local police department to report his wife missing. And. They reported her missing within the hour of realizing that she was gone because after searching themselves, they could not find her and they just knew that something was wrong. Like if she had gone out on a jog and didn't come home and she wasn't home at all and she wasn't on the streets, then where was she? Like the only answer could be something happened to her.
0: Right. Yeah. And they kind of seem like they're the type of people that had a very like tight schedule. Like they knew each day that they were supposed to pick up the kids at this time. This is usually when Judy would jog. So it seemed very out of character for her to be missing like this.
1: Exactly. So luckily police did get on this right away and the first thing that they did was report to the scene of Judy and John's home to ensure that she wasn't somewhere in the house and that nothing had happened there. And when they felt confident that she wasn't there, they also checked her jogging route just like her family did and the streets in the area for any sign of her. Eventually, the police were assisted by a state helicopter and canine teams, but the hours passed bringing morning with no sign of Judy. However,
0: they did find something that night that added an even deeper sense of worry. About three hours after Judy was reported missing at around 10.30 PM, a police officer was scanning his flashlight around a snowy street about four miles from Judy's house because this particular street was on her jogging route and police were just kinda searching the entire area. And suddenly, this officer spotted what looked like a piece of clothing and ended up just being a gray and black headband lying on the side of Redhead Hill Road. But still, thinking this could possibly be related, he took a closer look. And disturbingly, right by the headband was something that almost felt too eerily perfect to be real but it was. Next to the headband was a receipt with what looked like small spatters of blood on it. The receipt was from an equipment supply store nearby from two days earlier, so December 10th, 2005. On the receipt, items like a chainsaw and an ax. So why was it lying out here in the snow next to a headband? And was it connected to Judy's case? Well, right by the receipt were also what looked like small droplets of blood in the snow itself. And skid marks smeared across the road next to it. So, it all just kind of seemed too suspicious not to investigate this, you know, to the fullest extent. And right there on the bottom of the receipt was police's first lead. A man's signature. A man named Scott D.O.J.
1: As they're trying to figure out who this man is and what his connection could be to Judy's disappearance, locals are coming forward with witness sightings of Judy from that evening. Again, this is all happening the night she went missing because so many discoveries happen before morning. So one man says that he saw her closer to the time she set out on her jog and that she was trotting down the road and waved to him and he waved back. He couldn't confirm that she was wearing a headband, but said that he thought that she had some kind of hat on. Then another person came forward in the form of a state trooper who lived in the area, and he said that he passed Judy jogging. And shortly after seeing her, he saw a beat up station wagon with a white man in the driver's seat, driving towards where Judy was jogging. Of course, this was not suspicious to him at the time, but remembering it after knowing Judy went missing, he felt it could help. Well, as police looked into this Scott DOJ character, they uncovered that he drove the exact same vehicle, meaning that state trooper could have been moments away from witnessing a crime. As the hours passed, police continued to work overnight on this case to get answers as quickly as possible. So they knew they had to figure out the source of that bloodied receipt. So very early the next morning, I'm talking 4 a.m., they were finally able to get in contact with the owner of that equipment store to ask about the receipt and the man's signature. And what they were able to uncover is that the purchases were made on behalf of someone else, a loyal customer named Carol Spinney. Well, they were almost made on his behalf because the owner remembered that when 36-year-old Scott D.O.J. came in days earlier, he tried to put a chainsaw and chain oil on Mr. Carol Spinney's account, but the owner, for whatever reason, wouldn't let him, even though Scott D.O.J. worked for Mr. Carol Spinney and came in there a lot to buy different supplies. So Scott's girlfriend that he was with at the store wrote the owner a check instead. For those who don't know, 72-year-old Carol Spinney, well, he was 72 in 2005, is very well known in the world of puppeteering as he was the voice and operator behind Sesame Street characters Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch since Sesame Street's inception in 1969. So he was playing these characters for a very, very long time. Carol Spinney and his wife, Deborah, had owned their sprawling seven-acre Woodstock, Connecticut property since 1999, so about six years earlier, where they reportedly lived in a five-bed, six-bathroom estate, but they were always building and adding and just making it their dream spot. Their home is right on the Connecticut, Massachusetts border, so actually part of their property is in the state of Massachusetts, while the majority lies in Connecticut. And this property, located on Brickyard Road, crosses both the road that Judy lived on and the road where her alleged headband was found on, again, Redhead Hill Road, located four miles or about six kilometers from Judy's home. So considering she did about four to five miles round trip, I don't think that the home itself was on her jogging route, but it was very close. So after talking to the equipment store owner, they began their official hunt for Scott DOJ, who was harder to track down than they'd thought because they had multiple addresses for the guy in their system. Eventually, after knocking on multiple doors, one was opened by a blonde girl who seemed to match the description of Scott's girlfriend that he went to the equipment store with. This three-bedroom home is on Texas Heights Road in Plainville, Connecticut, around a 40-minute drive from his workplace at the Spinney Estate. So thinking about it that way, along Judy's jogging route would also be Scott D.O.J.'s commute to work.
0: So before getting back to the investigation, let's talk about Scott for a moment. Born on July 6, 1969, Then 36-year-old Scott, father of three, had a criminal record that included bizarre and very violent behavior, dating back to his teenage years in the 1980s. I'm talking things like larceny, burglary, reckless endangerment, breach of peace, disorderly conduct, etc. Yet for years, he had been working for the spinnies as a general caretaker and handyman, having access in and out of their property constantly to do things like you know, build new developments and additions, mow the grass, run errands, remove trees, and much, much more. So although hardworking, not the guy you want on your property around your friends and family, kind of a piece of shit. But it didn't really appear that he had done anything unsavory in front of Carol or Deborah, And by the way, Carol did have three children from a previous marriage, but they were not living at the home at the time.
1: Yeah, they were like full-blown adults.
0: Yeah. But still, did they know about his violent past? When 44-year-old Judy Nyland went missing that cold December night, the Spinneys were on vacation in Europe, so they weren't around to be questioned immediately. But as police zeroed in on Scott D.O.J.'s official residence and awaited Scott to meet them at the door after his girlfriend fetched him— they watched as he sprinted out of the house naked upon hearing that the police were at the front door so this is obviously very very suspicious very but the crazy thing is that Scott was able to get away this fucking naked madman is just running out of the house but he only got away for a moment which we're going to get into here in a second now meanwhile police are simultaneously heading to the Spinney's property to see if more evidence lies there. So obviously, like I just said, they were on vacation in Europe, but police were able to reach them and were given permission to access the house. Also, like we mentioned, this is a seven-acre property, and it had snowed, and it was also very icy, so searching the property was not only very dangerous, but it was very difficult. And when you tack on the fact that much of the property was heavily wooded, it threw a whole other wrench in the search. But as police fanned out, one of them noticed something horrific and unnerving. A literal trail of blood, leading to an outbuilding behind the spinny home.
1: blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples.
0: Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better.
1: I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin-D. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Safe.
1: With fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. As police fanned out across the expansive, multi-acre property that the spinny couple owned and inhabited one of the officers noticed an access road that led to a different part of the property. Since they didn't have a map or a blueprint of the place, obviously, they didn't know of any other buildings or sheds on the property besides the home itself. So everything was being discovered in front of their eyes. Unsure of what lie ahead on the access road, an officer headed down to find a newer development sitting on the state border of their property, meaning the development, more specifically a pagoda, was both in Connecticut and in Massachusetts, and this would prove to be a bit of an issue later on. And for those who don't know, a pagoda is a multi-tiered traditional Asian tower that are often used for religious purposes, though they can also be used as tombs or storage locations as well, amongst other uses, especially if you are a non-Buddhist man living in Connecticut. And in this case, it almost looked like a place partially used for storing the Spinney's paddle boats under the ground floor, though, where another part seemed to be used for relaxing, picnicking, and enjoying the view of the woods around the pagoda. Unfortunately, I have not found, there's a very limited photos associated with this case, but I could not find a picture of the pagoda. So I don't know if it was more gazebo-esque where it's like mostly outside, but just has a roof over it, you know, or if it's indoors, like I, I could not figure this out. So sadly, we do not have a photo of this for a visual, but back to the story. So as the officer approached, he noticed something horrific a trail of blood leading directly to this pagoda. And that's when they knew that something horrible had to have happened there and recently. As police entered the structure, they found blood smeared across the support posts and more smears of blood near a wooden bench on the Massachusetts side of the large structure. Looking around for more evidence, they observed pull down stairs above their heads leading to an upstairs space. And when they climbed the steps almost immediately at 10 30 AM, they saw the body of a white female with the outfit that matched the description provided by Judy's husband, John. And sadly, they also noticed that the running pants she had been wearing were pulled down to her knees while the rest of her clothing remained in place. As police inspected her
0: body, It was clear that she had been brutally murdered and that the biggest visible injury was to her head. But on top of this, the manner in which Judy was found was very disturbing because as she lay on the ground, she was hogtied. There was rope and black tape wrapped around her neck, wrists and ankles. But as they realized that her body was laying on the Massachusetts side, the Connecticut police had to back away and call the proper authorities to handle the scene instead. Meanwhile, it was clear that Scott had to be behind this horrific crime, so police back at the scene of his home looked for him. Police circled his house and immediately noticed that there weren't footprints in the snow running off elsewhere, so Scott had to be close. Narrowing in on the garage as the most likely place for him to be hiding, police found him hiding in the very tiny crawl space underneath of it. After dramatically wrangling him out, Scott DOJ was questioned about Judy's disappearance, and right away he denied any involvement. Even after being questioned for hours, even when they brought up the receipt and the headband, he denied knowing anything about what happened to her. But during the questioning, it was uncovered that Scott may have been connected to the rape of his 57-year-old former neighbor just a year and a half earlier in which the victim had been tied up with a rope after a shadowed assailant broke into her house at 11.30 p.m. Well, when they found out that Judy had also been tied up with rope, they took his DNA for a sample. And it was a match to the DNA that was found at the scene of his former neighbor. Now, obviously, the DNA match took about a month to confirm, but back on December 13th, during his questioning, they still felt that he was likely behind it. So they continued pressing him as well as searching his car. And when his car was examined, a visible smear of blood was found on the outside of his passenger rear car door. And then these officers found out about what the others had found back at the Spinney Estate, Judy Nyland's body. So the heat was now turned way
1: up and Scott D.O.J. changed his story. And what crazy things to uncover concurrently. Like you go look at his car and you see this smear of blood on the back passenger door or the rear passenger door outside towards the fender. And now they know that they have Judy's body. They know that she has been murdered. So now they just have to figure out what the hell happened. And now
0: this little piglet is about to squeal because he's changing his story now.
1: Well, kind of. So... Scott claimed that while he was driving home from work at about 5.30 p.m., he accidentally hit 44-year-old Judy Nyland with his car on Redhead Hill Road. Now, remember, it's not like the the front of his car was totally smashed up and his windshield, you know, it's like... Yeah, there's
0: just a little bit of blood on the fender.
1: Yeah, just, just towards the back of the car. So that doesn't really make sense right off the bat. But then Scott says that panicking from his mistake, that he sprung out of his car to see Judy lying on the ground, not breathing. With that, he sped away but returned, unsure of what to do next. When he got back to her body, he says that he loaded her into his car, drove back to his workplace at the Spinney residence, and tried to put her body up in the attic of the pagoda. But that because he wasn't strong enough, he dropped her, which is what caused some of her blunt injuries. And he's saying that he dropped her like while he was on the stairs, so he dropped her from pretty high up, and that is what he is saying is to blame for her head injury. So the reason that there was rope on her body, Scott claimed, was because he used it to try and pull and hoist her body up into the attic. And when that allegedly worked, he left her body there and headed home. But police didn't buy any of this. They thoroughly believed that he had been stalking Judy for a while, since she always took the same jogging route in the direction of the Spinney residence, and that he had planned to rape and murder her. Like in any case, the autopsy was an important piece to help prove how Judy had died. But believing it was all premeditated, they arrested 36-year-old Scott D.O.J., on charges of first degree kidnapping, first degree sexual assault, first degree burglary, and third degree assault. Oh, and after being questioned and just before his arrest, since police couldn't hold him, Scott tried to hang himself. So he was also charged with interfering with an emergency call and breach of peace, held on a $1 million bond. But his attorney, Ramon Canning, was adamant about proving that Scott's version of the story was the real truth. Ramon said, quote, "'He knows he made a stupid mistake and he feels terrible. He said, I hate it that I did that to the family. I hate that the family had to suffer because of what I did. I did kill her, no question, but she died under my wheel.'"
0: Well, Judy's autopsy determined that she had died from blunt force injuries to her head and neck, she was strangled as well, and that the manner of death was homicide. And the manner was determined not only by the state of her body, but also Scott's car, which after examining it fully, concluded that there was, quote, no evidence of recently being involved in a car-pedestrian-type collision, according to the affidavit. Meaning that Scott's story of this all being a mistake was disproven. The Wyndham County State's Attorney stated, quote, it's clear that Scott DOJ intentionally and cruelly beat her to death. In early February of 2006, so about two months after Judy's death and Scott's arrest, Scott DOJ was arraigned in a Connecticut court where he pleaded not guilty to capital murder and kidnapping charges, and he also waived his right to a probable cause hearing. But one year after the crime occurred, in December of 2006, he changed his tune. On December 21, 2006, 37-year-old Scott D.O.J. pleaded guilty to the charges against him, withdrawing his original plea of not guilty. Because the medical examiner couldn't determine the sequence in which the injuries to Judy occurred, state's attorney Patricia Frolik did not seek the death penalty, but instead sought a sentence of life without parole. While members of Judy's family sat in the court, holding hands and crying, Scott kept his head down. Many of her family members spoke, including her father, Robert, who brought the last photo ever taken of Judy with him. He said, quote, I have memories. I won't live long enough for this hurt to go away. One of Judy's sisters called Scott a real life monster, adding, quote, I loathe him for what he has taken. May he burn in hell and they felt strongly that a life sentence just was not enough, but that, admittedly, nothing was enough to satisfy them since they couldn't get Judy back. And Judy's mom said that Scott, quote, received a sentence of life while he, quote, sentenced Judy to death. Meanwhile, Scott's girlfriend, who was baffled and devastated by Scott's actions, told the Hartford Current quote, he had a good job, he had money, he had children. He portrayed himself as a good guy. But obviously, considering the crimes that he committed throughout his life, the woman he raped and what he did to Judy, that was so far from the truth.
1: After Scott quietly said the word guilty while taking the Alford plea, in court that day, state's attorney Patricia Froelich stated, quote, I am pleased that we were able to resolve this with certainty and finality for Judy's family and friends in this time frame. But there's no victory here. You've got a vibrant woman whose life was so, so horribly taken from her. There's no victory. And because of the Alfred plea, Scott was legally claiming guilt, but he wasn't actually taking responsibility. Like, he wasn't telling the true story of what happened. He just didn't want to be sentenced to death, so that takes away a lot of answers and justice as well. A few months later, in March of 2007, began Scott's sentencing. That day, with Judy's family sitting in court, Scott was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of release. He didn't apologize or show emotion, and after the sentence was read, one of Judy's brothers shouted, quote, this is bullshit before leaving the courtroom, because the family had really been hoping for the death penalty in this case. In Judy's sister Sissy's words, quote, we want him to die. With her other sister Barbara adding, quote, no judge, no jury, no conviction was going to make us feel good. The torment is indescribable. In the courtroom during Judy's husband, John's speech, he spoke to her saying, quote, "'Come on, kid, let's go and leave what we can here. "'We have a future elsewhere "'and maybe another song to sing together in the garden. "'I love you.'" At this time, Scott DOJ was sentenced to 20 years in prison after also pleading guilty to first-degree sexual assault in the rape of his 57-year-old neighbor back in June of 2004. About a year after Scott DOJ's sentencing in January of 2008, John Baker filed a complaint against Carol Spinney for having kept Scott on as an employee for three years, despite his criminal record, raising risks for people in Woodstock. After Scott
0: began working for the Spinneys, another employee of theirs became aware of Scott DOJ's criminal past and took note of many instances where Scott, quote, exhibited violent, unstable, and self-abusive behavior on several occasions. Scott was even arrested and convicted for various offenses in August of 2005, so a few months before Judy's murder, which the Spinneys were aware of. So John Baker thought that the Spinneys were negligent in the hiring and retaining of Scott, and he also alleged negligent supervision all of which the Spinneys filed to strike, claiming that there was not a sufficient claim for negligence as the Spinneys didn't, quote, owe Judy Nylon a duty of care. The document continues, quote, because the defendants did not have a duty to protect Nylon from the criminal acts of DOJ, they argue they cannot be held liable for negligence, negligent hiring, supervision, or retention under the facts alleged. And thus, their strike was granted, and John Baker got nothing.
1: So all in all, it's safe to say that her many siblings, family, and beloved husband John were utterly enraged and beyond devastated at what had happened. And they were passionate about getting justice and the truth about what happened to their Judy. In newspapers after her death, here is how people talked about Judy, quote... She was the kind of person you couldn't help but like. Judy was everything you'd ever want in a social worker, very knowledgeable, very capable, very compassionate. Judith Nyland was the kind of person who could not sit still, who always thought creatively, who sent gifts for no reason. So Judy's death was a deep loss for the entire community and beyond. But they really wanted to keep her memory alive and honor her for the years to come. So starting just a few months after Judy's death in May of 2006, the first of what would become an annual 5K jog called Jog with Judy was held in Woodstock, and it is still going strong. It's sponsored by the Judy Nyland Foundation, which was started by her husband and family following her untimely death. Their website, JudyNylandFoundation.org, states, quote, "'While the exact origins of the African proverb, "'It takes a village to raise a child," is not fully known, the shortened version, "'It takes a village,' means many must cooperate to achieve a goal. We would like to express our heartfelt thanks, and acknowledge the roles that our community has in the success of our Jog with Judy 5K road race, which in turn allows us to fund grants that support the students in our Woodstock public schools, which I think would have made Judy very, very proud. Thank you so much everybody for listening to this episode of going west
0: yes thank you guys so much for listening to this episode and on tuesday we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into
1: again big thank you to jessica for sending this case over i'm so glad that they caught scott and so quickly but what a completely devastating story
0: i agree and thank god scott is rotting behind bars to this day
1: Remember, if you guys want more content from us, we just hit over 100 episodes um, on our bonus channel, which is called Real Crime. That can be found on Apple subscriptions or on patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. And we just came out with a new episode on the disappearance of Trevor Dealy.
0: Yeah. So make sure you go check that out. Go subscribe. Also just want to say a big thanks to all the people who have subscribed and the people that have been subscribed for a very long time. We really, really appreciate you
1: guys. Oh yes, we do. And thank you everybody else for just listening to the show. We love you all. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger.